Julia is at the back. Those of you with children can meet her there. Great, did you like that? Yeah. I thought maybe that was one of his original songs. Isn't that beautiful? I would ask that the rest of us, let's take our Bibles and let's turn to John chapter 1. The Gospel according to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's called the interpretive gospel as contrasted with the synoptics, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, written in a similar synoptic, the same kind of view and the same chronology. John, of course, wrote later in life the disciple who lived to a rich age and gives us this amazing account as he interprets uh, the account of what happened to Jesus uh, to the Western uh, world, to the non-Jewish uh, world. And so uh, he has to, as you'll see as we read the text, he has to explain what some of the words mean, that Messiah means, that Christ means the Messiah, and so on. As I was reading this and thinking about the Lamb of God, I got to thinking about one of the interests, I, interests I've always had about uh, comparative religions and the religions of the ancient world. And I've always thought the psychology of religious ritual sacrifice it's a fascinating thing. Why do human beings have that sense? There's something within all of humanity that causes us to feel as though we owe a debt to God when we've done something wrong and we need to pay that debt somehow to him. And so throughout the world, in all the ancient cultures, virtually all, this debt is paid by taking a prized perfect possession, a perfect bull or a a uh, lamb without blemish, or the first of the grain offering, or the first of the wine harvest, and offering it to God, and then feasting on that lamb, eating that bread, drinking that wine, in a great celebration that we have been restored to relationship. We've paid our debt. Everything is as it should be, and we are feasting on the forgiveness of God. Now, we see remnants of that, of course, in our in our. Uh, modern society in our judicial system where we explain that a criminal is paying their debt to society when they do the time for their crime. One author explains that anthropologists have up to 14 possible solutions as to explanations why this is true throughout all humanity and that sacrifice is a fundamental form of religious behavior. But then the author goes on to say, it's not easily reducible to normal kinds of rational explanation. Now that last phrase is what makes it even more fascinating, though the scholars, of course, have their opinions as to why this happens in all the different locales and, and in the ways it's done. There seems to be something that's not easily reducible to normal rational explanation. We all experience it but it doesn't originate in rational thought. It doesn't come from the mind. It comes from the heart. We feel as though when we do something wrong, all human beings, that we owe something to someone. At the very least, we owe an apology for having done what we've done, but we also long for some way to make it right again, to restore trust, to restore confidence, to restore relationship, to restore faith to allow us to find some righteousness again after things have become not right, unright in our lives. Now this universal human experience of needing to pay a debt for
for the sin that we have committed is taken away in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, who, as John describes him, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you think about that, John is saying that God himself became that sacrificial Lamb of God. He came and did whatever is necessary for all of humanity that this debt that we all feel could be paid, that the guilt could be healed. All the songs that Doug chose for the first part of worship expressed it in a whole variety of ways in which the sin is taken care of, the guilt is done away with. We live free from that sense of having done wrong. We are, in fact, paid in full. We no longer meet at the altars of sacrifice this morning and do a ritual uh, sacrifice. Jesus and Christ ended all that. He took the sin of the world away. It's interesting that in the world after Jesus, anthropologists tell us that even in the religions that do not worship Jesus Christ, religious sacrifice had virtually disappeared by the 11th century. If you see it today, it's an anomaly within even that religion, or it is, in fact, satanic worship that has continued to do ritualistic worship. But Jesus, as the Lamb of God, has had such a profound impact upon the whole world that all the religions have stopped doing ritual sacrifice, not just the Judeo-Christian world. So to understand the importance of this, we want to turn to the words of John as he describes what John the Baptist was doing and why John introduced Jesus in this profoundly psychologically spiritual way and what that means for all of us, not just those who know who Jesus Christ is, but for the world as we bring the world to Christ. So let's go to this John's account of John the Baptist's description and introduction of who Jesus Christ is. John chapter 1, we'll start with the 29th verse, and we're going to go through the 43rd, I think. John writes, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day John was there and again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and he following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. As I said, he's explaining to the, the Greco-Roman world these Jewish sayings. Rabbi means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. 
It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to go find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. I'll keep that open before you as we study these words. Let's pray. Father, it's an amazing thing uh, that you would send Jesus into the world. Jesus, it's even more amazing that you would come to satisfy these deepest of all longings. And Holy Spirit, we recognize that it's through your convicting and cleansing power that we're able to live new life. We would ask that you'd speak to each of us. We're all in a different place in this journey. So I'd ask that as you speak to us, you would help us also to listen and to take a next step wherever we are on the journey. And we do it to your glory and to your praise. Amen. I have talked with people who felt no debt. They didn't feel that they needed anyone's forgiveness. They said, in essence, were only human born to make mistakes. You should just accept me as I am. I don't need your forgiveness, and I'm not going to forgive you. I've talked with others who felt that, well, yes, there is wrong in the world, but it wasn't their fault. It was their mom's fault, or their dad's fault, or their kid's fault, or even God's fault for the way that he made the world. They're not responsible, and so they have nothing to apologize for, and they don't intend to. And they certainly don't need anyone's forgiveness, and they're not in anyone's debt. I have talked to still others who have decided that it is religion itself that created this sense of, of debt that we all feel. And if we only removed religion, then all guilt and sin would be gone. In other words, our sense of justice, our sense of fairness, our sense of right and wrong of being betrayed, of being blessed, making things right when we've done wrong, all of those kinds of things are because religion made it up and imposed it upon us rather than coming from our deep need that God is attempting to satisfy. They say get rid of religion and then you won't feel guilty no matter what you do. Human beings can do whatever they want because it's religion that made something wrong. Now I could go on and on and talk about the various ways in which human beings have tried to deal with this guilt and rationalize it away or push it off on blame on someone else or explain it away in some kind of, of institutional sense. But removing debt without removing sin causes this kind of weird thing to occur within a person's life. I was down visiting my brother one time down in Texas and we were driving down this country road and we came to this tavern uh, that was there, a very small little uh, uh, quaint tavern. And in front they had one of those trailer signs that you see when you just bring in a temporary sign. And it said, I read where drinking is bad for you, so I gave up reading. <laughs> now sadly, that's what many people do. It might be bad for me, then I'm not going to go to church if you just tell me it's bad for me. The thoughtful person, though, who recognizes that there are things 
that destroy us and who want to live in the freedom of Christ continues reading, continues listening, continues thinking. They analyze life. What is going to solve this human condition that will allow us to live in peace and love with one another? What will change the world such that we no longer destroy each other, but in fact care for each other? And as we begin to listen to that, we begin to seek an answer, and we eventually come to Jesus Christ. And we must at some level deal with what he said. In our text, John the Baptist is the forerunner. He's the one who is to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. I think of him kind of like an Ed McMahon who's introducing Johnny Carson, except that in saying, here's Johnny, he says, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's placing the stage and the lights and the emphasis on Jesus, who is the Messiah, meaning the Christ, the teacher, who has come to set us free from all things. It's interesting that in this introduction, John uses the singular word for sin. Jesus does not so much take away the many sins. He does that. But he takes away the whole category of sin. He isn't just offering forgiveness for our sins after we've committed them and we confess them and he forgives us of our sins. He's offering us a way to be free from sin before we commit it. He is offering us a way to take away sin itself, this bent that we all have towards doing the selfish, self-centered, and hurtful thing so that we can, in fact, keep ourselves free from sin before we sin. So when we say he's taking away the sin of the world, we are making a profound statement. In our Wesleyan tradition, We believe that God can help us become persons that God created us to be because God has made it possible to restore us to that right place, that righteousness that God has. He doesn't just take away our past sins. He forgives us of sin. He not just forgives us for what we should have not done in the past, but we did, but he gives us the ability to do what we should have done and should do in the future. He actually allows us to hit the mark. That's what sin really means. At its basic core, it means missing the mark of our humanity as God created us to be. And we're not really human. We're subhuman in some way. And he's he's restoring us to our humanity, giving us the heart of God, the love of God, the self-control of God, the ability to love as God loves. We affirm that every time we celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion. When we say in the two-pronged prayer, we are genuinely sorry for all wrongdoing and for every failure to do the things we should. And then we pray that God will give us strength to serve and please you in newness of life, made possible because the Lamb of God has come and taken away the sin of the world. So the first meaning of John's introduction of who Jesus Christ is is that God himself has come down to deal with this debt, this guilt that sin has produced, and not just to forgive us of the past, but make it possible for us to be people that 
can live with others together eternally and not hurt each other anymore to really change the human being so that we're able to live in newness of life in a Christ-like way. Now, the introduction of, of John to Jesus has a second part to it that's multi-pronged as well. He says that he not only has, uh, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he's the one who is coming after him, who has surpassed him because he was before him. Now, the scholars tell us that that phrase has two different meanings, both of which are important. The first and simplest meaning is that he surpassed John because Jesus is greater than John. He is before him in the sense that John only came to give a message of repentance from sins that we've already committed, baptizing by water so that we are cleansed and brought into God's presence. But when Jesus came, he baptized with the Holy Spirit so that we can become whole new creatures capable of removing that way of life that has been so destructive in our past and giving us opportunity as we follow him day by day, one moment of glory to another, as the scripture says, as we're coming into that place of wholeness that he intends for us to experience. Jesus says that John is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, but John says that Jesus so much surpasses him you can't even compare them. He's not worthy to even tie his sandals for this one who is coming is the great one, the Messiah, the solution, the redeemer, the savior, the one who pays all debts and sets us completely free so that we can live eternally for him. Now, the second meaning of that being before is equally fascinating. As you know, it's kind of confusing when John says that he does not know him because John is the cousin of Jesus, the son of Elizabeth, and they had, as you, we know from the Christmas story, had encounters. And we also know that he was six months, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. So in what way was he before him? Well, it's a tremendous acknowledgement that Jesus did not begin his life at the birth, as you and I do, as John did. He is the incarnate eternal one. He lived before the foundation of the world. He incarnated in human form, and he surpassed all that human beings have ever experienced, modeling for us what it looks like to be a child of God. He is, as the book of Revelation describes it, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the eternal God and the pre-existing one. So John introduces Jesus to the world. He's that great forerunner who says, he's the lamb who takes away the sin of the cosmos, of the world. Everything that's gone wrong, Jesus came to make it right. He is the one who was before us, surpasses everything, and he will complete all things in his wonderful work. So if this is who Jesus is, then how do we respond to such a one who came? Well, here John the Baptist also gives guidance to us. He tells his own disciples to follow him, and when they do, Jesus simply says, come and you will see. Come and see. 
Now, Jesus is not just talking about where he's going to spend that night. That's not the implication of that question nor the, the answer that he provides. He's inviting them to come and see, to personally experience who he is and what he's doing, to come and to see. Now, I, I greatly appreciate that invitation that Jesus Christ extends to them and to you and to me. He simply says, come and see. I think it's the greatest statement you can make to a friend or a family member when they don't know Jesus Christ yet. Don't try to convince them of some theological thing. Simply say, come and see. Come and spend some time in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him reveal to you who he is and who you are and what life is and what we're all about. Let him be the one who expresses to you his great truth. You don't have to stay if you don't want to. Come and see. You don't have to follow if you don't experience who he is and what he can do. This is not a game. It's not some religious gathering. This is Jesus Christ paying the debt of every human being and setting us free to live in a whole different way, in a way that brings joy out of every day and out of every relationship, no matter the sorrow. He will bring comfort and presence and allow us to walk through the difficult times. He can give you and me life that is so full, so full that we are no longer held captive by sin, either past or indwelling. We can follow him. And he not only allows us to have the Holy Spirit's power, this wonderful grace to respond to God, but to in fact be effective in that response. So what is your response? Are you following Jesus now? Are you coming and seeing? The fact that you're here implies that you're coming and seeing and spending time with him. What does it look like for you to express that to others and invite them to come and see who he is? Do you accept responsibility? And are you genuinely sorry for your sin? And are you asking him to help you change and do what you should do in the future? Do you manage sin and keep it in some kind of managed way and, but continue to keep it in your life? If you do, it has a pervasive harm to you and your family. It will hit generations. So are you removing that? Are you letting God cleanse you and let you be whole and holy before him? As we spend time with God, let's remember who Jesus Christ is and let's allow him to be the one who guides us into this amazing life. Let's spend time with him.